What are you doing down there? <laughs> Did they not offer you seats, proper seats? <laughs> this is the way children are treated these days, you know. <laughs> um, I think they put me back here for a reason. I don't know what it is, but I'm coming up. church you have. Thank you very much for inviting me both to the church and to the festival and to come to this part of Cornwall, which I have quite strong connections with in a funny way, very odd way, but it does, it does provoke the beginning of my talk. Um, I'm going to talk quite a lot about memories this morning. At the back of almost all the books you've ever read, and I've ever read, what you're being allowed when you have a book in your hand to tap into is what the memory of an author has produced. Without memories, and I dread de dementia so hugely, because without memories we, we become nothing. We know our families through memory, we know our whole life through memory. And the longer the life is, the more the memories are. Uh, the more joyful they are, the sadder they are. And that's what fills your books, the events of your life, the faces of your life, the places of your life. So Cornwall. I've written about the Isles of Scilly quite a lot, which I won't talk about that much because the sun shines on Scilly. <laughs> it, it clearly doesn't shine here, so <laughs> Scilly isn't relevant. But I will talk a place about a place called St. Evil. Is that how you pronounce it? Evil. Evil. How far are we from there? Okay. Well, it's almost as close as I've ever been to the place where my uncle died. Um, but I want to tell you about my uncle. I want to tell you about both my uncles. Because they, because of their lives and because eventually they, they made me write a book. I have two uncles. Um, I was born in 1943. I knew one of them. Didn't know the other. And you'll find out why. Um, my younger uncle, Uncle Peter, um, was an actor. Um, very good looking. All male members of my family are very good looking. <laughs> uh, he, no, but he looked like Rupert Brooke. He was just amazing. Um, anyway, he went to RADA and he became an actor. Uh, and his elder brother, Francis, was a, a teacher, which I have been. And, but Francis was a magical teacher, a wonderful teacher. They're both called Camarts, that was their name. They were half Belgian. I am a quarter Belgian, so I'm a migrant. That will be important later on in my talk. Um, what happened was they, were, they grew up just before the Second World War. And when the war was... A, about to break out, there were a lot of discussions going on in the house. Peter, uh, the younger of the two brothers, um, immediately war broke out in September 1939. He knew he was going to join up. They'd had the discussion in the family and he said, if it happens, I'm just going to go because I have to, because we have to stand up to fascism. That was his position and that's it. His brother, Francis, was different, about four years older, a teacher and a very strong socialist stroke, communist and pacifist. And part of the discussion on the family table was, do you fight or do you not fight? Or what do you fight with? My uh, elder uncle, Francis, thought you fought with education. And um, Peter said, that's all very well, it's very idealistic, but excuse me, there are people across the channel who are likely to come here anyway. They had, a, am sure, heated arguments. What happened was that the war broke out. Peter went to join up in the RAF and he was posted to St. Evel, not far from here. And um, he was killed when his plane crashed at age 21. Meanwhile, the other uncle had been sent uh, to a committee. He had to declare himself a pacifist and justify why he did not want to fight. Uh, he thought it was wrong. And uh, he passed. They realised he was completely sincere and they sent him to a farm up in Lincolnshire, where he looked after the sheep and the pigs and helped dig potatoes, which is what 
happened to a lot of pacifists in the Second World War. You had to contribute to the war effort, but not fight. His first baby had just been born, and he was by the phone in his farmhouse when the phone rang, saying that his brother had been killed. And he told me later on, I knew Francis um, when he was a very, very old man very well, and he said, just after I put the phone down and I'd heard the news of my brother's death, I looked down into my child's face, and I thought to myself, I cannot any longer stand by. I have to, I have to do something, because otherwise those people have just killed my brother because he was on a mission when he crashed. Um, they could come here, because it was early in the war, and everyone was under threat of invasion. So he decided he would join up, but he didn't want to march up and down and put on a uniform. He hated all that sort of thing. So he had a friend who he knew had joined something a bit odd and um, went to see him and said, look, I, I want to fight, but I don't want to simply be shouted at by a sergeant major. I want to make a difference. And you're doing something interesting. You've never told me what it was. And his friend said, no, I can't tell you anyway. Fellow teacher, you can't, I'm not going to tell you. But I can tell you if you go to this number in Baker Street, um, you walk up the stairs and walk in and you tell them who you are and tell them you speak French, which you do very well. Maybe it's something you'd be interested in doing. Anyway, what he didn't know as he walked up the steps to this little office was that he was walking into um, the offices of the Special Operations Executive, um, which selected secret agents and dropped them into France. So he found himself six months later after training, dropped into France, effectively a spy and as close to the enemy as a pacifist would ever likely want to get. The story of his life is utterly amazing because he, he became the leader of about 10,000 resistance fighters down in the south of France. He survived the war um, with extraordinary, yes, adventure, but great sadnesses and all the rest of it. And he died a few years ago. Uh, and I asked his family, would I they mind if I wrote his story. Um, and they said, no, provided we see it first, <laughs> which seemed to me to be a reasonable request. So I have a wonderful French illustrator who I got to know, who, because, I mean, because it was a French story, it essentially takes place in France. Um, I asked him, he's called Barou, and here's the book, it's called In the Mouth of the Wolf. I can't read it, all of it, because you've got a copy already. There's no point in my telling you in that case. <laughs> Put your hand down. I'll have all your questions later. I've met you before. I know you're trouble. Don't worry. I, I, I knew he was trouble the moment I saw him, that one. Anyway, what I thought I'd do is just to read you at the beginning of it. What happens is, you have to imagine if you can, this old man, he had a birthday party in his little village in France where he went to live, and they all loved him. He was called Monsieur le Colonel, and they all knew he'd done the extraordinary things in the war, and he was very much revered in the village. Um, you know, he used to walk up every day. He had this routine of walking up the village street. People used to see him coming as he passed the cafes. And he was always doing the same thing. He was walking to the paper shop to buy his copy of The Guardian. <laughs> and then he'd walk to a cafe and he'd sit down and he'd read The Guardian in this little village. That was, in a way, how he ended his life. Uh, I don't know, two years before he died, three years before, they gave him a party to celebrate his 90th birthday. And everyone came along. The children came um, from the village, and they sang, uh, Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. And uh, he loved it. He just loved the whole thing. And I imagined he went to bed afterwards. And what would he have been thinking, I thought to myself, and this is where I suppose the storyteller comes in. I didn't want to tell a historical story. I wanted to tell a story that was completely true. <coughs> which I've done, there's not a word of untruth, but the telling of it, the manner of the telling is my invention. He's in his bed after his party. And I was thinking, what would a man like this think, age 90? He would be thinking about the people who weren't at the party, all the people who'd made his life. I refer you back to what I said when I first started. So I'll just read you the first chapter. He's lying there in his bed. The first chapter is called, Happy Birthday to Me. They gave me such a jolly party today. Everyone from the village came. Ninety years old I am. I'm walking a bit stooped these days. 
and my knees and hips are more rickety than they should be, but I can walk up into the village and I still like a good meal and a glass of good red wine. I had plenty of that this evening. Sleep does not come so easily as it did, but I mustn't grumble. I have my memories and friends all around me, my family too, those who are still alive. What more can an old man want? Ah, a better memory would be good. I'm fine with faces and places. It's the years that get muddled, jumbled up. I spend my time trying to unjumble them. The village mayor made a generous speech and said how honoured they were to have Monsieur le Colonel Francis Camarts, such a great man and such a great friend to the people of Le Pouget and of France, living here in their little French village, and his family too. The schoolchildren stood in the courtyard with their Union Jack and tricolour flags and sang sur le pont d'Avignon and London Bridge is falling down <laughs> as well. And everyone clapped and sang happy birthday to you in English and in French. A little girl stepped forward to present me with some flowers, red, white and almost blue irises. Lovely. The mayor said she was the newest girl in the school, that she had recently come from the Punjab to live in the village. She spoke with quiet dignity and in good French. I am Jup Janpun Kaur, from all the children in Le Pouget. I wish you a most happy birthday. I repeated her name again and again to be sure I was pronouncing it right. She smiled at me and told me that Kaur meant princess. The flower, she said, came from her garden. I was so glad at that moment that we come back to live in France, but sad that not all of us were here, that Nan and our Christine were not with us, several others too. I miss them more today than ever, but I have Paul and I have Nicky and I have Jay, a wonderful son and two dear daughters, and little Kia, who is no longer little at all. Grandchildren grow up even faster than your own children. I should be thankful, and I am, I am. But I am in the dusk of my life, a dusk that is streaked with joys and sadnesses. I was suddenly tired and longing for the solitude and quiet of my little room and bed. I waved them all goodbye. Jay helped me into the house and into bed, hugged me and left. What children I have, what friends they are to me. So here I am now, in my bed, night has fallen, the bright moon shining in through the winter and the church bell striking midnight. My scops owl hoots his birthday greeting to me. I smile in the moonlight and settle back on my pillows. I know I won't sleep. This is a night for remembering. I want to remember everyone who wasn't here at my party, all my good companions in life who held my hand, stroked my brow, helped me through. I want to see them all again, be with them, live all my life with them again from my sand pit days to now. 90 years. Then the next chapter is called Sand Pit Days. And you go through the, the early night with him before he falls asleep, meeting all his friends, and the meeting of the friends, whether it's his wife or his brother or his father, they, the meeting with them tells the story of his life and the life of Peter. I treasure that book because it is... It is not fiction. It's a story of my family. And all of us have in our family stories that make the family what it is. And part of the, my family story is in Cornwall, somewhere in the hedgerows of St. Evil. He's not buried here. He's buried in Radlett in Hertfordshire, which is where he came from. But I'm here to talk about the book I've just written as well. Um, and it's not unconnected. I mentioned to you as I was in a flippant sort of way, that I'm a migrant. Do you remember? That is the youngest child I've ever talked to. <laughs> I mean, have you seen how young that is? Would you, would you mind standing up so that they could... No, no, please. Shh, shh, shh. We want nothing woken. <laughs> it's fine, but three weeks. Yeah. Stop boasting. <laughs> Here's the problem. I can't sell any books to someone. <laughs> I do not write for three-week-old... I'll get around to being serious in a moment. Here's the thing. Um, I am very sad and upset at the moment, as many people in this church will be, about the state of the world. And part of the sadness that we all have are the visions we've seen on our television screens and we read in our newspapers 
And all the difficulties we have in this country, that's another issue. But the appalling uh, suffering that refugees and asylum seekers are going through all over the world, as we're sitting here in this beautiful church in wonderful Cornwall, in peace, with homes, with families. There are children like this being washed up on beaches, alive and dead. There are families who are fleeing from whatever horror it is. And there are plenty of horrors to run away from. We've just had another start of yet another war and another 600,000 refugees on the road joining this huge wave of suffering that's through the world. I think sometimes we think we're a bit special, that it's only happened now. Well, there have been migrants in this world ever since mankind walked here. That's how we spread around the world for a start. But I do think it's important to remember that in the memory of my grandparents, um, in my historic memory, I don't remember much of this because I told you I was born just in 1943, but I know the stories. And some of you will know the stories. For instance, that in 1914, 260,000, think of the figure, 260,000 refugees from Belgium got in boats and came across the channel to our shores. No one complained about schools being too full, hospitals being too full. Um, we can't fit them in. People then knew these were people in need, and they welcomed them in. The biggest migration there's been in Europe happened in, in my lifetime, and many people here too. It's in Germany. The migration of 10 million Germans from east to west as the Russians came in from the east. 10 million on the roads of Germany, just fleeing, fleeing, fleeing. And then there's the, the reverse thing, which again we don't even think about very often. There is um, us fleeing somewhere else. Uh, let me explain. Um, some of you again will know this, but after the Second World War, there were a lot of unwanted children around. How, when I look at that, anyone can unwant a, children, a child? I don't know. But they were unwanted for one reason or another. They were either orphans or no one had any space for them in their lives, and they ended up in children's homes, large numbers of them all over this country looking after orphans and children that were unwanted. And the government didn't know what to do, so they went to the agents and said, you know, Bernardos and people, what are we going to do? And they said, well, look, there are plenty of people in Australia and Canada who would like children of their own. Send them there. It was, it was a good idea. It's better than sitting around in a, in a home. There were families, and that's what happened. And there were ships that left Liverpool with 2,000 children. Uh, remember then, they couldn't come back again. No one asked them. They were just put on the ship, and off they went. And some of them had a great time. They had families there. But these were migrants going the other way. So this has always gone on. Um, no one in this room is not concerned about that in one way or another. The reason I became particularly concerned was of two things that happened. Events, memories. A dear friend of ours invited us at some point to go with her, I think for support, to a place called the Jungle outside Calais in France, where I think approximately 3,000 um, refugees from, from all over, Afghanistan, Iraq, all over, um, wanting to come to our country, to be here, couldn't get any further than the coast, and so they were surrounded in this camp with this barbed wire, and they lived in sort of plastic tents and unbelievable squalor. And this friend of ours wanted to do something for them. She worked in the theatre, and she wanted to make a play to explain their predicament, and said, would you come along, and would you come along? So we went. And I found myself sitting in a tent with about 14 young Afghan boys. They're all boys, no parents, totally alone in the world, and longing only to get across the channel and see the white cliffs of Dover. And maybe a relative that was here as well, because very often they had a right to come because they had an uncle or an auntie or someone who lived here. So I sat in this tent, and we joined arms, I've never forgotten it. They sang their songs, and we sang our songs. We couldn't understand anything they were saying. They, we didn't understand them, and they didn't understand us. It didn't matter. 
We just knew we were, this was solidarity. For the moment, they had people they knew were on their side. And that seemed to me to be important. And we stayed there, not for long. But long enough to see, for instance, that one of them had been beaten up by the French police the night before, trying to escape. So these people, generally speaking, were seen by the French and, uh, to say, by us, as a nuisance. Uh, we wished they'd go back where they came from. I seem to remember there was another man who said that not long ago. And they have been treated in some places shamefully. I went to a detention center once in this country where children were locked up, children with their families were locked up for up to four or five months. It's called Yarlswood. Before they were to be sent back to whatever country they were to be sent back to. And I, I was enraged by it. Anyway, I thought eventually I would write a story. In the end I did, but it was a very odd happening, this story. It's called Boy Giant. What it started out as, and books are like this, that's what's lovely about them. Hands up those of you who dream at night. Hands up, hands up, hands up, hands up. Drop your hands down. You know what happens when you dream. Because you're not in control, what happens is the story takes flight and it moves from one thing to another. That's what's wonderful about dreams. And there's something that's really dreadful about dreams. That woke you up, didn't it? <laughs> really dreadful about dreams is that when you wake up, you forget the stupid things. And some of the best stories I've ever had have never been written because they were lost in some dream. This did get written. And it's because of the diverse things that happened. First of all, the illustrator of this book, a man called Michael Foreman, who comes to Cornwall a lot to St. Ives. And Michael Foreman came to me this 25 years ago and said, Michael, I want, I really, really want to do a retelling of Gulliver's Travels. Would you retell Gulliver's Travels? Some of you young ones may not know this. Do you know about Gulliver's Travels? These little people who live on an island called Lilliputians and a sailor washed up on the shore and he, they're frightened of him because he's a giant compared to them. So they pin him down on the beach by his hair, by his shoes, by everything. Anyway, it's a very famous sort of image in English. In English well, he's Irish actually, so I won't say that. But <laughs> anyway, it's the most, most extraordinary story. But the problem is it was done and done and done and he wanted to paint the pictures and I didn't just want to tell the story. I will tell you why. Because when that man, the wonderful man who wrote it, uh, put pen to paper, he wasn't writing a story for children to enjoy. He was writing a story about the society in which he lived, the cruelty of it, the inequality of it, the way that power dominated people's lives, wars. He just wrote a story about these travels of this sailor Gulliver. And I thought, I just don't want to write a little... Story for kids, which is fine. I like kids. I like stories. But this isn't what you do with this extraordinary story of his. That was 25 years ago. And then five, six years ago, when the whole vision of this horror that we're living with, with unwanted people all over the earth struggling to find a place to be, I thought, hang on. This is what he would have written about if he'd been here now. So I took his story and... Um, wrote not a retelling but a, but a novel and uh, it's a novel where Lilliput comes into it um, so we see that um, but the person washed up on the beach is not uh, an 18th century sailor with silver buckle boots and long coat he's a refugee from Afghanistan why Afghanistan? well I'll tell you and it's weird yes it's because of the camp I visited which I told you about but it's also because of something which will surprise some of you. It's because of cricket. I've always had in my heart that I would one day write a novel with cricket at its heart because I love what cricket is. I love the sound of it, the smell of it, the vision of it. I love the game, the fact that it's still played everywhere, everywhere in parks and village greens. I love that. Um, and I used to play it myself. I was really good. <laughs> Not good enough to play for England, but I was really good. Um, and I loved the game. And I never, never wanted to, I never found a way of somehow incorporating it in a book. Uh, and then it sort of happened. A friend of ours rang us up and said, Michael, I know you're concerned about refugees. <coughs> yes. So well, I've been working for a charity which is trying to look after asylum seekers, young boys, 14, 15, 16, 17, cooped up, in pretty awful accommodation in Croydon with nothing to do. They're not allowed to work. 
They can't go anywhere. They can't do anything. Their families are thousands of miles away, and they're dying of depression and despair. And I've discovered something, Michael. One thing that all these boys, their eyes light up, is when you start talking about cricket. They absolutely adore cricket. Could I bring, Michael, a team of Afghan asylum seekers down to Devon, where I live, to play cricket against the local villages? So we gulped a bit. And then I went up to the pub the next day, because that's where the cricket team in my village is run from. I said, well, what do you think? There's a whole bunch of these people who want to play cricket. What do you think? He said, yeah. You'll soon beat them. <laughs> and um, anyway, they said, fine, fine, fine. And I don't know, six months later, it had to be organized. They stayed in the big house where Claire, my wife, runs this charity farms for city children. It was holiday time, so we had a place to put them and to look after them. And they turned up, two o'clock sharp, smart as you like, for their cricket match against the village of Iddersley. And here's the thing. I think people knew right from the start when they saw them practicing that we were in for <laughs> a difficult time. Because these youngsters, apparently when they play cricket in Afghanistan, it's very, very rocky ground. They don't play with a hard ball, they play with a soft ball. So they do not know fear. I've never seen a cricket ball hit so hard in all my life, or bowl so fast. We lost by a, a very large margin. They then got in the coach the next day, and went off to play another village, and another village. Five villages in Devon, they, played. they won every single match. And they were very, very popular, um, because they behaved terribly well, they took it very seriously, um, and they did lovely things too. I remember one of them, we were having tea, because you have to have tea in the cricket. And we were just at a table out in the sheep field where we were playing. We were just having tea, and they were all around having a little tea as well. And one of them pointed to the hills of Dartmoor, and said, it is like Afghanistan thought the hills of Afghanistan came to and then not late not that <laughs> they went to Biddeford you ever been to Biddeford there's a wall along the river Torridge and there's lots of fish and chip shops and they be they just beaten Torrington or something I don't know and they went and had fish and chips sitting on the wall and one of them looked at Biddeford and said it is like Kabul Everywhere they went, what they tried to do was to link home to this place, which I was very touched by. Anyway, I wrote this story. Uh, it's about cricket. It's about refugees. It's, a, it's really also about Lilliput. It's about Gulliver going all those years ago, being washed up on the beach. And before he leaves, in my mind, he told all the little Lilliputians, who were this big, by the way, much smaller than you, and probably much nicer too. I mean, really small. <laughs> And he told them all that he comes from this world where people fight stupid wars. And some people are very poor and very rich and it's wrong. Do not become like this. And they'd listened to his words. And for 200 more years, they had created this society, an ideal society, where the ethic was you live for each other. Because that's what Gulliver had taught them. I think there's someone connected to this church about 2,000 years ago who said much the same thing. Anyway, I won't go all religious on you. Here it is. It says at the beginning, with thanks to Jonathan Swift, author of the great Gulliver's Travels, which was published on the 28th of October, 1726. This is a modern version. And here's the thing. Look, look, children. Don't go to sleep on me. There's a badge there. Do you see the badge? I found this in a bookshop in Paris where they, you had to buy a book and they give you a badge. And when I saw it, I thought, yes, that's the sort of feel of the book I'm trying to write. It says, and it comes from the Bible, I believe, from Hebrews. Be not inhospitable to strangers, lest they be angels in disguise. So, I'll just read you the first chapter. Chapter one. Tiny, they called me. All we knew about her was that she called herself JJ, that she spoke English, that she was alone out there in her big yellow rowing boat, and that she was like a giant to all three of us, even me. A giant with a bandaged wrist and plasters on her fingers. So tell me, she said, tell me everything. 
I could hardly refuse, could I? I mean, this JJ had saved our lives. It was thanks only to this stranger that we were dry again, well-fed, warm and rested. I mean, she went on, I want to know how it is that you're out here on the open ocean in such a small boat. Who are you? Where have you come from? I could have asked her much the same questions. But I found myself telling her a whole story. I was happy to tell her too, not just because she had shown us such kindness, but because once I began telling our story out loud, it somehow helped me to believe it had all really happened to me, helped me to remember who I was, who I had become. That she would believe me, I had no doubt. After all, she had the evidence right in front of her. She could hardly take her eyes off the evidence. The three of us were there to prove it. We were the truth of our own story. I began at the beginning, because without the beginning, none of it would have made sense to her. And anyway, none of it would ever have happened. I would never have had to leave home, and my life would have been another story altogether. It's quite a long story, I told her. That's fine, she said. I need to rest this wrist anyway. I can't row far like this. So I began. Where I come from is no longer my home. There was a house and a village I once called my home in Afghanistan. I had a family of my own once. Not anymore. I have my name, Umar. I now have a mother, but I don't know where she is. I think and I hope she may be in England with Uncle Saeed. I was on my way to find her. That's why we were out here on our little boat when you found us. And we found you. I don't know anymore what day or month or year it is, but I think I must now be about 16 years old. Of my beginnings, of my home, there is not much to tell. And I do not like to speak of it or think of it because it makes me sad to remember. My home was a quiet place in a peaceful town in the countryside. We lived on the edge of town. My father was a shepherd. Our flock was our livelihood. We never went hungry or thirsty. I had a little sister, Hanan. She and I were much loved in our home. We were together. We were all happy. School was school. All my friends were there. We learned our lessons, played together. But I was always small and thin. And at school, I was never allowed to forget it. Tiny, they called me. Little I may have been, but I was by far the best at cricket. No one hit the ball harder. No one bowled faster. The pitch was always bumpy, but it was the same for all of us, and it was fine. Everything was fine. I could read the bounce of every ball they bowled at me, see it right onto the bat. I lived for my cricket and my family. Everything was good. Well, mostly. Every night I went to sleep wishing I could score more runs the next day or take more wickets, and I prayed I would be a little taller in the mornings. I would measure myself up against the mark mother had made on the wall. The next day, I would often score more runs or take more wickets or both, but I was never any taller. Hanan was still taller than me every morning and she was two years younger than me. Then the war came to our town and I had other worries, more serious worries. I do not know to this day why the war came. It was on the morning of my 10th birthday, I remember that. We heard the planes in the sky and then the bombing began. We were in school. There was nowhere to hide, nowhere to run to. At the end of that day, our home was in ruins, our school too. Many of my friends had died. I was there when they were buried. I helped to bury them. Father died too, when the planes came again the next morning. And so did most of our sheep. Then we discovered Hanan was missing. We looked and we called, we looked and we called. But we never found her. Only mother and I were left. We had nothing. No shelter, no food, no father, no sister, no daughter. The aid workers came after that, and they brought us food and tents and built us a refugee camp. We weren't a family anymore. We were refugees. We lived in that camp a long time. The aid workers were from England, and they were kind to us. They smiled at us, and we liked that. It cheered our hearts. There were doctors and nurses who were good to us. It was cold through that winter, but we survived. The refugee camp was never a home for us. It was a place of shelter, that's all. Sometimes we played football and cricket 
with the aid workers, and they taught me to speak a little English. They were amazed, amazed at how good I was at cricket. I liked to amaze them. It made them smile. But then one day, Mother said it was not safe for us to stay, that she was sure the planes would come again, or the soldiers. Many in the camp had decided to leave, and we would go with them. So Mother and I, and a few others, we left the camp in the middle of the night, and we began to walk. We walked for weeks and weeks. We walked over the mountains, through the desert, followed where others went, all of us with only one thing on our minds, to find somewhere far away from the war, anywhere. That was a place of peace, where there was food and water and shelter, where we could be safe. How long and how far we walked, I do not know. Sleep was our only comfort. You couldn't forget when you were asleep. Waking up was the worst part of every day. I wanted only to stay where I was, curled up on the ground and never get up again. I was so tired, too tired to care anymore. Mother saved my life every morning. She would never let me lie there. She always said that if I didn't get up and walk on, I would die. And she wasn't going to let that happen. She would tell me sometimes that she could smell the sea. And I had to be strong and brave, like Father and Hanan had been. She promised me that beside the sea there would be a boat waiting for us to carry us to safety, to a new life in a new home, where there would be lots of smiling people like the aid workers and the doctors and nurses in the camp, and where there was no more war and no bombing. All I had to do, Mother said, was to put one foot in front of the other. Her love and her promises were all that kept me walking. There were wire fences, there were lorries, there were trains, there were more refugee camps. The police beat us. There were people who yelled at us to go home. Others who took us in and fed us and gave us warm clothes and smiled at us. We never knew what to expect. But Mother and me, we put one foot in front of the other and we walked. And you know what the next chapter begins? I will just give you the title. It's another reason for reading to you here today. Chapter 2, the title is... Four Street Mevagissi. <laughs> this story ends in Cornwall, in a place called Mevagissi. And some of you are thinking, what does this Devon man know about Mevagissi? <laughs> well, I will tell you and then I'll shut up and have some questions. I chose Mevagissi because I went to Mevagissi. I went to Mevagissi because of a story. Here's the story. My wife, who is here today, with me, because she wanted to come, doesn't always want to come, but she wanted to come today. <laughs> because of Mevagissi, I think. Here's what happened. We have a grandson who, at the time, I think, he was about 12. And we knew he was keen on two particular things in life. He's a strange boy. He's wonderful. He liked church bell ringing at 12. And he liked whales. And most of you will be thinking of the creatures. No, no, no. He liked whales the country. And he lives, wait for it, in Zagreb in Croatia. And he's dotty about Wales. He just loves the poetry. He loves Dylan Thomas. He likes the rugby. He likes the singing. He loves Wales. So my wife had this brilliant idea. Claire had the lovely idea. She said, well, why do we not? Because she said, I'm Welsh. My wife said, I'm Welsh. So we're going to ask your brother. Your brother's very good at this, Michael. Mark. To find out my family tree. The exact way in which we Welsh that she's Welsh, and put it on a nice poster, decorate it a bit, and give it to Alan for his 12th or 13th birthday to prove that he is Welsh too. Wouldn't that be great? So I rang up my brother Mark. I said, could you do this? Could you do this? He said, yeah, yeah, we love it, love it. Love it. Uh, give me a fortnight. Anyway, a fortnight later, as he rang up, he said, do you want the good news or the bad news? <laughs> I said, well, um, let's have the bad news first. And he said, well, I'm afraid... Your wife is not Welsh. <laughs> she, in fact, and this is where it gets the good news, she, in fact, is Cornish. And her Cornish family moved to Wales. But she is, by origin, she comes from Mevagissi. She's a Mevagissi girl. And here's the thing. I'm going to tell you some really good news. Is that you've got to know about this relative who I've discovered. There's a relative who lives in Mevagissi, 
who's called, Claire, are you there? James Dunn. James Dunn, at the time in Cornwall, let's call it pole dark time, then we all know where we are, <laughs> when smuggling was quite big. And the biggest smuggler in Nevergissey was her relative. <laughs> and here's the other thing which is even better. He wasn't only the head of the mafia, if you like, in Mevagissi. He was the Methodist minister. <laughs> I can say this with confidence in an Anglican church. It's fine. So he's a Methodist and the head of the mafia. And he used to invite people. And here's where the story... So what I love about stories, true stories, because it's from this truth that fiction comes. So that was just lovely to hear. But then my, my brother said, there's something else you should know, Michael. That very, very strangely, this man, this James, what was he called? Dunn, James Dunn. You go to Truro Cathedral, there's a window, on, you're on the right-hand side, there's a window which says James, so you know I'm not lying. Anyway, um, this, this man used to invite preachers to come down to his church in Mavagissi. And he had written, and there were there's records of it, I think it was six or seven times, to a preacher called John Wesley who's really quite well known, isn't he? And he's my relative. So her relative wrote to my relative a really long time ago before I ever knew I was going to marry my wife. I love that sort of stuff. I mean, I know we're all related and Adam and Eve and all that. Anyway, uh, I thought I'd tell you that's another bit of truth and something slightly jollier than what I've been talking about. Anyway, here's the thing. It's question time. I am told we have got a... It's Mary, isn't it? Mary has got, um, I think, children, will you see that? Look, look, will you look at Mary? Pay some attention here. She has, she has what's called a microphone. And she's going to come round, and if you want to ask a question, she's going to attend to the front part of the church here first, then the back part, then the front part here, and then there, and you people might get a look in if you're lucky. Is that all right, Mary? Right, and I'll ask if there, there may not be any questions at all. I think the first one might come from that terribly small one. What, what is it, a he or a she? It's a girl. It's a girl. Name? Hazel. I oh, know, I don't believe it. Hazel is the name of my granddaughter, who I was with yesterday. This is wonderful. Isn't it? I just love it when this. <laughs> so, I, do you know what we should do? Very quietly. We all whisper. Hello, Hazel. <laughs> Once more, so she can hear me. Yes. Right. Now, anyone on this side want to ask a question? You don't have to, but any questions. Put your hand up if anyone dares. Um, well, hang. Did you have one over there? No. You know. <laughs> this is for grown-up people as well as... The, but you had a question. Yes, we'll come to you in a minute. Um, yes. Uh, is the answer that uh, that's where we live? We've been living there forty-five years now. It's the pub. It's a church. I'm not going to talk about pubs. <laughs> There's children here. It's a church. You want me to talk? It's a very good pub. You must go there. <laughs> um, yes, it is. And in fact, the interesting thing is that the reason we started our charity in the first place—I should call it Claire's charity because that's who it is—is because Claire, aged, how old are you? Nine. Nine. Well, two years younger than you when she was seven. I think because she was quite a difficult child, she was sent away by her parents to live with a friend who kept the pub in Innesley. And she lived in a little room above the pub and she'd be sent out walking in the countryside. And she got to love the countryside and she got to love the farm animals and the farmers and the creatures that she saw and the, the slow worms and the frogs and the toads so much that when she grew up and we both became teachers, she thought, the classroom's okay, but you can't teach everything in the classroom. Why don't we try and find a way of enabling those children who need it most, who live in these big cities, to come to live and work on a farm? That's why the charity began. But it all started when she was seven. Yes, I do live in Edisley still. Yes, along this side. Anyone else at all? Yes, there's one there. No, I'll get you. I promise. I've not forgot you. Yep. What was your favourite book as a child? I wasn't a great reader. I'd love to tell you I was. I wasn't. I really like playing out more than reading books. Um, but the first book I ever thought that was really good was a book called Treasure Island. 
It was by a man called Robert Louis Stevenson. I don't think you'd have read it. Really? You are a rare child. <laughs> by and large, people find his language too difficult. It's very, very beautiful. It was the first book I ever read, which completely fascinated me. And I remember it was the first time I ever imagined totally that I was inside the book. There's a, a little boy called Jim Hawkins, I think he's called. And I became that boy hiding in the barrel of apples. Do you remember this? He hides in a barrel of apples on the deck of the Hispaniola and he overhears this ghastly, cutthroating mutiny going on. And he's terrified. And he's just sitting in this barrel of apples and overhearing it all. And I was in that barrel of apples. I could smell the apples. It was so well written. I love that book. By and large, it's not a book that... Um, do you know why I liked it? I'm not, you're not supposed to say these things this day, but I, I will. When I was eight, I think, when I, I, I read it, um, I really did not like reading any books with girls in them. <laughs> because girls alarmed me. They still do, actually. I'd certainly prefer... And the thing about Treasure Island, there's hardly a girl to be seen, not a whisper of them. It's, there really isn't. There's, there's an innkeeper, um, there's, but by and large, there's, I think he's got a mother, but you wouldn't know he had. It, it was just one of these totally boy books, and everyone's cutting throats and murdering each other. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, good question. I know you wanted to ask a question here. Yeah, it's here now. You see, your turn's come even without you asking for it. Yes, please. Will I sign books? And DVD cases. <laughs> the answer is, I'm not going to sign books, and I'll tell you for why. Because there are already labels which have been pre-signed. The reason is this. Wait for me. I have a bad wrist. I get a thing called repetitive strain syndrome, and I know you don't care. <laughs> but if I sign too many books, it begins to hurt. And since I, it's my... That this is really important to me because this is what I write with my hand and I don't want to wreck it anymore. So the answer is no, shan't. <laughs> uh, can we pass it, pass it along? Love it. What, what? I didn't hear, sorry. Your large? I didn't hear, I'm sorry. Come here, you monster. It's the last one of these cases I'm going to sign. Do you understand? I'm, and by the way, it's, it's going to cost you. <laughs> come here, come here. Quick, quick, quick. Get out of the way, for goodness sake. It's not going to make the case any... Oh, you've got a case there. Oh, in that case, I'm definitely signing. Okay. What's your name? Noel. It's not, is it? Noel. Someone had that name before you, Noah. Do you know that? <laughs> he had lots and lots and lots and lots of animals. Far I know. You do know he, he, he went off with them. No. Here we are. No. And you are Noah, are you? Yes, Noah. I know how to spell Noah. Would you? <laughs> Go away. Is that yours? Yes. You sure? Yes. You're not a thief as well? Yes. Is there any more in that region? Are we, there, look, there's one there, I think. By the way, for the grown-up children here, this is really open to you. I don't want this to be dominated by the little monsters. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't hear. Who's my favourite author? I have two, you call them mentors, really, people I most want to be and whose work I've loved. The, the, the one is Robert Louis Stevenson, I told you about. If you read his books, what's marvellous about Robert Louis Stevenson, and it's difficult because the language was, you know, it was written a long time ago, but here's a man who could write great stories for children. He could write serious novels for for adults, quite dark novels for adults. He could write poetry. He could write travel books. The man was a genius. He really was. Lovely songs he wrote and stuff like that. So I'd like to be him. And I'd like to kind of have his storytelling genius and also the poetic power of someone called Ted Hughes, who I was lucky enough to know. He lived down the lane from us in Devon. And I'd love to be able to marry, if you like, his force of language, the music in his words, with Robert Louis Stevenson's story, but I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'll just have to be me <laughs> and my name. You didn't know this, but you got, you've seen my name, Michael Morpurgo. That's only half the books I write. The other half, I call myself J.K. Rowling.
Just thought that would impress you. That's all. <laughs> how does that man, how does that man, and is, I thought J.K. Rowling was a woman. No, 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 no. <laughs> yes, please, is there any more that's, look, there's one, you should have had your hand up before. We, I've got to go, we may, we may try later, I'm sorry, but there's a, I'm on a routine here, I'm on a, um, there, there's a horrible child here, this one here. What I've written, my, my rubbish, not anyone else's. You want me to talk about the favourite book? Well, the favourite book, and there's, there's two truths here, several truths actually, but the first one is, the, with any writer, the book you've just written, you always think it's your best and your favourite, because it's still in your head. So Boy Giant, that I've been reading from, it's still in my head. I can see it as I was imagining it. Uh, and I love it, dearly. When, when you make a book, you, you love it. You're, you're not waiting for the reviews and stuff like that. You, you think, yeah, that's all right. I put a full stop. I've done it. Clever me. And I love that book. The book that a lot of people seem to love, including my wife, Claire, who thinks it's my best book, is one called War Horse. You've got it. Fine. Uh, bravo, you. Um, <laughs> She likes Warhorse for two reasons, I think. First of all, I think it's set in, in our village in Devon, in Iddersley. Every cottage, every lane, every tree in that book is in our village. And she loves horses. So put those two things together, I think that's why she loves it. I, don't, I, I, I love the fact that she loves it. It helps me to love it. I, there's a problem. It's this. That I have written, I think it's 82 books since Warhorse. And every single one of my books, I show to her first. She's the first person who reads the book and tells me what she thinks. Here's the problem. She likes telling the truth. <laughs> so what happens, I'll show her the manuscript that I've written, and I tend to go out for there, and I'll come back and say, what do you think? And she'll say something like, it's good, Michael. Maybe you shouldn't maybe look at that. It's very, very good. Sometimes she says, it's really good. I really like it. I really like it. And I will always end by asking her the same question, is it as good as Warhorse? And she replies every time, no. <laughs> what is your name? Janos. Janos. I'm here to give you some life advice. <laughs> when later on you choose a partner of your own, which a lot of us do, um, do not choose anyone honest. <laughs> Choose someone who will flatter you <laughs> and make you feel good. This way you will have a happier life. <laughs> Anyone? Um, oh, good. Right, this little monster first, and then, um, yeah, go on. Yeah. Um, what brings your least favourite book that you've written? The least favourite. <laughs> I knew I shouldn't have. It is difficult, because some of the books I've written, I know aren't as good as others, that's kind of how it is. Even some of Shakespeare's plays are not as good as others, and some of Mozart's symphonies are not as good as others. It's okay. Here's the truth, is that all the books that I've written, are you paying attention or just looking away? <laughs> you ask the question, I'm here to answer you. The truth is that when you've make, made a book, I, I think I mentioned to you, it's, you like it when you've done it. It may not be the best thing ever, but you like it when you've done it. It's like... I don't know how to say this really. Um, well, you, I don't think you'll know this in this part of the world. But generally speaking, to make a baby, you need a man and a woman. True? Here's the problem. When you have a baby, you love it. Don't ask questions about it. You love it. Each one of these is my baby. <laughs> I made it myself. I know that because it's got my name on it. I really, and whether it's good or bad, you like it. And parents are like that with children. You really love your children. And you hate anyone who is nasty to your children. <laughs> and I hate anyone who is nasty about my books. So there we are. I love it. It's wonderful. So this, this is born from me. And I'm here to tell you that it's much easier being an author than a parent. Much less complicated. <laughs> is that all I've got time for? One more. There's, I think there was a, a, a lady down there who, who, who ran up and looked enthusiastic on that side. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't got anyone from here. Is anyone from there? There's one over there, look. No, over there. I better. 
because I haven't had anyone from that side and they feel they're being mistreated. Yes? The inspiration by behind Kensky's Kingdom. Have you read it? Yes. Has anyone here else read Kensky's Kingdom? Yes. Yeah, well, that's not enough. <laughs> uh, let's have a little test here. Put up your hands if you've read Kensky's Kingdom. Okay, give yourselves a clap, will you? <laughs> now put up your hands if you haven't read Kensky's Kingdom. <laughs> and give yourselves a boo. Uh, Kensky's Kingdom was written really because of, um, oh, just many, many moments, I suppose. But the first thing I discovered was this, and it's a historical truth, that there was a Japanese soldier left behind on an island after the Second World War because many Japanese people at the end of that war refused to believe the war was over or lost, and one or two were alone on islands in places like the Coral Sea and the Pacific. And one of them was on an island for 27 years. Now, Robinson Crusoe, I think, was on an island for four. 27 years this man was on this island. And I thought to myself, when I read that, 27 years living alone. He was rescued, by the way, by someone from a yacht and taken back to Japan, where he, he became an MP. Um, and it, his life was quite ordinary after this 27 years on an island. But I thought... I, what I'd like to do is to make a story where there's a boy of today from England who could meet up with this man who by now, of course, is an ancient Japanese warrior and they'd be sharing an island together and how would that work out? And I thought that was an interesting way of trying to talk about difference, otherness. Also an interesting way of exploring the importance of the environment. Kensky is the most marvellous man for living the simple life and having a contact with the creatures around him. He's a hero for today, you know. I know Greta is our hero in these things, um, and she should be too. But he, he was the person I wanted to live in harmony with this world. And this boy from modern England comes there and tries to share this paradise, um, which isn't exactly a paradise because there are people who threaten it. So that's why I wanted to write it. And the thing about writing a book which may, may interest you is that before you begin, you really have to choose a name. You have to find names, and names are really, really, really hard. And when I'm writing as J.K. Rowling, I chose Harry Potter. Um, <laughs> um, probably because I knew a Harry Potter. I don't know. I've forgotten now. But when I wrote Kensky's Kingdom, I needed to find a hero. And because I'm not as imaginative as J.K. Rowling... Um, I tend to call heroes very often Michael. <laughs> it's sort of simpler. You're right in the middle of the book. So as you know, the boy's called Michael. Okay? And then I didn't know I live in the middle of Devon. There are not a lot of Japanese people living in the middle of Devon. I don't know many Japanese people. I got lucky. I went to a school. I was doing a reading. And after the reading, I was signing books. And I looked up, and there was this big Japanese boy. So I said to him, what's your name? And he goes, Kensuke. I said, what? Kensuke. I said, it's Japanese, isn't it? He said, yes, I'm Japanese. It's a Japanese name. I said, could I borrow it? What for? To put in a book. Yeah. Will you give me a copy? Yeah. And I did. So I borrowed his name, Kensuke. K-E-N-S-U-K-E. I thought that was that, but there's a dog in it, isn't there? There's a dog in it. And here's the thing. Dog, the dog in it is really quite important. So I didn't want to just call it Sally or Rover. And I didn't know what to call it. And I was working at this for days, for days, for days. And this is, goes back to a story on the farm. I was working on the farm with some kids one day. And one of these kids gave me the name. And I'll tell you how. It was a November night. We were walking down a dark lane to do the milking parlour. Twelve children from Bermondsey in London. And it was dark, and they're not used to darkness because they do street lights everywhere. And they were all frit. They were all sort of quite close to me as we walked down the lane. Really close. And there was my wife's little dog following along behind. And his big boy, about 11, he goes, What's that? <laughs> no, no, it's how they're talking. I said, What's that? I said, The dog. <laughs> he said, Yeah. What sort of dog is that then? What sort of dog? I said, well, I said, well, it's like a, it's like a sort of lurcher. And he goes, lurcher? <laughs> I'm a bit sort of cross with him, really. He's mocking me a bit. So I said to him, 
Have you got a dog? Yeah. Bigger than that. <laughs> Alsatian. So I said, um, what's it called? And he goes, Stella Artois. You pinch it. And if you read Kenski's Kingdom, you'll find the dog is called Stella Artois. <laughs> Listen, I'm about to finish. I've got to finish. But, well, I'd like to finish doing something a bit different. But I will link it up to the main subject of what I've been talking about, which we tend to think of, um, of migrants of today. There were people, and many of you will remember this. Children, listen, this is quite important. You won't know this yet, but everyone else here does, that there was a time before you were born when Europe was occupied by other soldiers. They could have been German soldiers or Russian soldiers or others. It was occupied. We've never been occupied. The last time other soldiers came to this country and occupied it was a thousand years ago. We just don't know. They know. And my wife and I came across a village, an event in a village. We were invited in someone's house in the Pyrenees. Beautiful lunch. The mayor of this tiny little village, 100 people, he gave us some pate and he gave us wine. We got chatting. I speak a bit of French. And I said, well, how long have you been living here? And he told me. I, I said, oh, so you were here during the occupation because the Germans came there. And the reason they came to this village was because the mountains there, the, these Pyrenees mountains, over the other side of them is Spain. And Spain was neutral, not occupied. And if you went there, you were free. You could go home, wherever it was. And a lot of Jewish people trying to escape the concentration camps, came down through what they called safe houses, passed from safe house to safe house to safe house, all the way down through France. And the last safe house, this man told me, we didn't know it, he said, during the war, and I was only ten, and we didn't know it. But there was an old widow living outside. We didn't like very much. But it turned out that woman, quietly, saved hundreds and hundreds of Jewish children's lives, at risk of her own, because this German garrison was put there, they patrolled the frontier, and she had friends who would guide these children in groups of a dozen or so over the mountains to safety in Spain. And she hadn't done it, those children would have ended up as being part of the six million who were in the concentration camps. And I thought to myself then, what an extraordinary woman, completely unknown, you have to write a story without using a name. So I did it. I called it Waiting for Anya, and they made a film of it which you can see in February, called Waiting for Anya. And the reason I thought it was important to finish with it was because it's made in the village where Claire and I went to, a place called Leska in the Pyrenees, tiny, tiny. And you can see the mountains and the sheep and the shepherds. And the lovely thing is there's some music in it. And the music of shepherd songs. There's a wonderful um, sort of tradition of folk singing down there. So I thought what I'd do is to sing you the song from the film. The words are my own, um, are rubbish, but the, the actual tune is wonderful. Actually, the words aren't rubbish, because what the words do is tell you a little bit of what these people were doing for these children. Anyway, I hope you like it. You have to imagine I'm about a hundred shepherds, uh, and I'm not. So you know what I'd like you to do? I'd like you to join in for me, the chorus. I'm going to tell you the words... I want you to keep them in your mind, and then when I, I, I'm very good at conducting. Here's the first line. Oh, where have you come from, and where will you go? We can keep you and hide you, but where will be home? So, say it with me. Oh, where have you come from? And where will you go? We can keep you and hide you, but where will be home? And I'll conduct us through it and hope you enjoy it. Oh, where have you come from? And where will you go? We can keep you and hide you. But where will be home? We can't be your papa, nor your mama so dear. We can comfort and hold you, 
keep you safe from all fear. Oh, where have you come from? And where will you go? We can keep you and hide you, but where will be home? Lie low in your stable, and don't breathe a word. Be silent, be still now, no sound must be heard. Oh, where have you come from, and where will you go? We can keep you and hide you, but where will be home? One night under moonshine, with the world still in sleep, we shall take you and lead you over mountains so steep. Oh, where have you come from, and where will you go? We can keep you and hide you, but where will be home? Oh, follow in our footsteps, where sheep softly go. Step gentle as hares do, as we tread through the snow. Oh, where have you come from, and where will you go? We can keep you and hide you, but where will be home? And no one will see you, we shall make sure of that. We can walk hand in hand there, and never look back. Oh. Where have you come from, and where will you go? We can keep you and hide you, and where will be home? To the stars we are going, our hearts full of hope. You can laugh, skip, and sing then, as you make your way home. Oh, where? you come from and where will you go we can keep you and hide you but where will be home go home to your papa to your mama so dear they'll be watching and waiting no more sorrow no more fear you come from and where will you